0: You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. what's up resonate? good to see you guys um, we are moving into a new series today and we're doing something that we've never really done before um, in terms of a, a kind of a series that we're doing um, we're going to look at specific people of the Bible and we're going to look at how God used them in significant ways and specifically um, we're going to look at all these people in the context of uh, women in the Bible and understanding why and how God used them in a really specific way and you might ask well why would we uh, point our, our focus that specifically? And, and I think that um, because in this, as we begin to look at these stories, and specifically four stories of women in the Bible, they're all incredibly interesting, and I, I believe that um, in a male dominated society of which, you know, the context of the Bible was written, that God provided some of the richest moments um, to the women in the Bible and some of the most accelerating moments in his kingdom to to women in the Bible. And I think it's worth looking at the kind of characteristics that God uses and how God uses people and how it appears in the Bible to be illustrated through um, women. It oftentimes kind of has this exclamation point to it. And so um, today, here's the point that we're gonna look at. At how do you rise up in moments? How is it that when there's a moment in, in your life, when there's a moment around you, how is it when you have those two choices, whether to step into that moment or to pull back from that moment, um, how can we begin to see through, uh, through these people in the Bible how to step into that and how to be able to claim that and how do you have strength and how do you have the courage <clears throat> to seize those opportunities around you? And these moments, <clears throat> I believe, come big and small. That there's moments that we, um, that we may not even see and, and moments that can pass us by. And there's moments that are obvious in our life. And there's moments that we begin to think, I know them in a moment. I know what's happening here. But in those moments, um, what, what should you think? And how should you act? We need a script. And, uh, and I believe that uh, the best way that we begin to operate is when we have something that's really clear for us. Uh, we we have a pathway, we have a script. And when we begin to recognize those moments, we begin to instinctively know this is how I should act. This is how it should look. And so today um, I I wanna present a script to you from someone um, that we might not think, hey, this is the script for how I should live my life. It's the story of Esther. And Esther is a book in the Bible in the Old Testament. And Esther is, is just one of my favorite, favorite books in the Bible. And it's very unique. Um, and it's very unique in many ways, but one of the most unique ways, and one of the ways that it almost did not get to us is because it never mentions, mentions um, the name of God. It has no um, reference to God in the entire book. And yet I think as we begin to see this, and we begin to see this moment, you'll begin to see God's fingerprints all throughout the book of Esther. But I want to take, and I want to just focus on one moment in Esther's life. And I want to focus on one moment. And I believe that this moment will give you and I a script for how we can recognize the moment and how we can step into the moment and how we can begin to understand what it looks like for us to begin to take courage and begin to seize the moments in our lives. And for us to be able to understand that there's many, many of these moments. And as we look back and we see our lives, we begin to see about the amount of times that we stepped into the moment and didn't retract from in the moment and so I want us to get to Esther and we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 we're going to start in verse 12 and um, and this is a moment where um, where you begin to see Esther and her and her uncle Mordecai and what has just happened is uh, throughout the the narrative the the big point of conflict in the book of Esther is that um, Esther is a Jewish woman and the king has issued a decree that all people who are Jewish in in there in Persia these people they are they're exiled from from Israel to to uh to Persia all of them should be killed they're going to annihilate the Jews all right so this is uh this moment and here's this uh, this decree has just gone out that has kind of saturated all 127 provinces of this empire and king Xerxes has put this out and this is calling for all Jewish people to be killed. And here's the moment between Mordecai and Queen Esther. It says this. It says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Here it says, do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. "'but you and your father's family will perish. "'And who knows that you have come to your royal position "'for such a time as this?' "'And she replies, "'Go gather all of the Jews who are in Susa "'and fast for me. "'Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. "'I and my attendants will fast as you do. "'When this is done, I will go to the king, "'even though it is against the law.' And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. This is a small amount of words, but it carries a massive impact. In there, we begin to see uh, this reality that to go to the king um, on your terms is immediately set up for you to be uh, for you to be killed, so you do not come into the king's presence. the king calls you into this presence and so what is happening is there's this significant moment and Mordecai is telling esther hey this is what we 're up against this this is the significance of what we're what we 're um, walking into and Esther knows that this is something that is incredibly incredibly dangerous to go to the king without like, the king summoning her is essentially a death sentence. So something has to give. So either she dies from the decree or she dies at the hand of the king. How does this happen? And in this, as we begin to look at this, I think this entire picture of, of what happens in Esther is not just something that can be relegated to just the Old Testament and just um, thousands of years ago, but it's the same exact thing that happens today in, in our in our reality. So what we have to understand is, like Esther, the need is uh, the need around you is urgent. You see, in this, just 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 a little bit of Old Testament history here. Um, what happened is that the uh, the the Persians, King Xerxes, took and invaded um, invaded the. Jews Jewish land, Israel, and took these slaves from there. They took um, people out and they brought them back. And as they brought all these people back, they now are inhabited there in, in Persia. And so in this, they're they're exiled, they're they're people and they ruled over the Jews. And so in this, um, there's a guy named Haman. So he's going to come into this uh, story. And Haman was was a guy that had a significant amount of power under King Xerxes. And in this, um, Haman decided that he wanted to kill all the Jews. And so he wanted to annihilate the Jews. The difficulty is that Esther um, has been chosen by the king to be his queen and she is a Jewish woman. And so, What happens then is that Mordecai begins to tell Esther, hey, there's a decree that has just gone out. And this decree is annihilating uh, all of the Jews. And then Esther has a moment. And this is what leads us to this place and the recognition of the urgency of the need around. And so she starts off by saying, hey, I, I can't do this. I, I can't do this because it is against the law. I can't go to the king. That's that's certain death. But the recognition of this is that Mordecai says, Hey, this is urgent. There's something significant in front of you. There's something that is is going to be radically, radically um, necessary for you to engage in. And this is so key for us. It says this, it says, do not think that because you are the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. And and this is this fascinating thing that um, Mordecai in all of his wisdom begins to help her clarify that that when there's something evil that happens and when this begins to pervade society, no one is protected from that. There's no one who ultimately doesn't have some sort of effect by those kind of things. When evil men take their schemes and begin to display those, when things work against the kingdom of God, it affects everyone. And, And I think that that for us is true too, because we have to understand that our culture is moving at breakneck speed towards godlessness. And as we begin to think about this, even as uh, for those of you who are a little older and you have a little bit more timeline to be able to see, I mean, there's some significant things that are going on in our world. And as we begin to see the momentum towards godlessness, when we see the momentum towards a secular understanding, the removal of God from a worldview and an understanding of the world, and when we begin to think about how that begins to pervade, I believe what's happened is oftentimes we just, as, as believers, we just think that's just, the way it is, or that's just, it's just kind of, we don't know what to do about it, or that's kind of this, this, this thing that we can't control. And when we begin to see the 24 hour news cycles, when we begin to see all the things around us, there's a sense by which we lose our urgency to begin to recognize that just the same thing that Mordecai says to Esther, that it is not like all this stuff is happening and it's not going to affect us. And that we cannot stay simply um, like, hey, this is not a big deal. Hey, this is not something that I have to really change my lifestyle for or pull myself out of my comfort zone for. I I I don't need to do anything It's just, it's kind of happening around me. And I think oftentimes we can fall into these places where we're simply taking and we're just landing in apathy or we don't know what to do. And so we just stay still. And we begin to think about the threat if we were to act and we begin to say, okay, what is this gonna cost me? And the recognition that we first have to say is that there's a need around us. There's an urgent need that we begin to have. And in this, I would just believe that the people of God And if if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't shrug your shoulders at some stuff. You can't say, ah, just, I, I guess I'm just gonna keep living my life and just kinda keep my head down and keep my private faith and just kinda keep doing my thing and believe that it's not going to affect us and believe that somehow it's not going to enter into our world and believe that somehow we can continue to keep a private faith and believe that our private faith is gonna protect us from a public godlessness. It doesn't work like that. And so we, as people of God, have to also be people of action that recognize the need and recognize that we've got to do stuff. And we cannot just say, this is just what I believe. I'm just gonna do my thing because we miss moments and we miss what is going on around us. The the incredible opportunity that we have in the entire church, but specifically in Resonate Church, is that God has allowed us to be able to invest into a group of people in college towns across the Northwest that have an opportunity to affect the culture around us. And, as we say this over and over, what we get to do is we get to operate in being able to influence the top two percent of world leaders right of people who are college graduates that go out and enter into politics and enter into business and enter into uh, government and enter into um, all of these different aspects that begin to shape our culture and we begin to th- to have an opportunity in these windows to be able to influence them in a significant way and the people that come to College Towns, they're influential because this is just this reality. And we have this amazing opportunity to not be passive to an urgent need, but to be able to engage the urgent need. And all of us have opportunities to take the gifts and abilities that God has given us to begin to engage this. But I want us to get that we cannot shrug our shoulders to this, that the need is urgent. And if we don't believe that, then we're putting our head in the sand and we're hoping that nothing happens to us. And we're hoping let me talk to you parents, we're hoping that nothing happens to our kids because it might not change in your lifestyle or in your lifetime, but I want us to get that we work urgently, not just for us, but for our kids and our kids' sake. And that's when we begin to say, this is what it takes. And the need is urgent. And sometimes we need a Mordecai to come and tell us that it's coming into our house and it's coming into our neighborhood and it's coming into our context and we cannot sit and simply begin to believe that it will pass us by because of some privileged position that we may or may not have in the world around us. And it causes us to embrace moments, to take the courage and the strength to be able to say no more, to be able to say, it may cost me something, but it does not keep me from acting. And as we begin to think about this, how is it that we begin to affect something in a deep way? So one, the need is urgent around you. Number two, the God over you is sovereign and in control. The God over you is sovereign and control. The need is around you. The God over you is sovereign and in control. This is such a deep truth for us to believe. And as we begin to think about what it looks like, um, the, God is going to have his way. The question is, will it be through you? And that there's, no, there's no accident that you are in this time and in this place. You might, you might say, I'm not sure how I got here. I'm not sure how I got to this town. I'm not sure how, how I ended up here. I want you to get, I want you to know, this is not an accident. The time and place in your life has been ordained by God for a specific purpose. The need is urgent. There is a God at work in this. Here's what it says. Here's what um, Mordecai tells. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He's reminding Esther, Queen Esther, of the moment that she needs to step into, not because of her significance, but because of God and because of God's sovereignty. And because here's the thing, God is going to do some stuff, right? but it's up to his people to be able to embrace that and to be able to understand this truth. And when we begin to understand the truth of God's sovereignty and when we begin to understand what he is doing, man, this radically changes the way that we begin to live. It radically changes how we act. Again, there's no mention of, the, of God in this book. And, and for some, that's an issue. Hey, how can we have this book that's our scripture that begins to direct our lives? without it even mentioning God. But here is the, the, here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is this. It is rich in God's sovereignty and how he puts this together and how he begins to act in a way where it displays his fingerprints all over this. So I, I just want us to, to kind of go through and to be able to see this. So how does Esther become queen? One day... Queen Vashti upsets her husband, King Xerxes, so he cast her out. This just so happens to create the need for a new queen. Enter Esther, who just so happens to be a beautiful Jewish woman, who just so happens to find favor in the king's eyes among all the other women. Esther just so happens to be Mordecai's cousin, who just so happens to hear about a plot to kill the king. Mordecai just so happens to tell Esther who tells the king and the king's life is saved. Mordecai's act was written down in a book, but it just so happens that he wasn't honored honored at that point. All this leads to a guy named Haman, an evil man who just so happens to become prominent in the kingdom. He's the one who wants to kill all the Jews. Haman hates Mordecai because he won't bow down to Haman like everyone else. This makes Haman mad. So he decides that he's going to have the king kill Mordecai. So he has these gals built to kill Mordecai and his plan is to go to the king the next day and ask the king to kill Mordecai. But it just so happens that night the king can't sleep and he says to someone, hey, someone read me a book. And it just so happens that the guy goes out of all the books to get a bedtime story for the king. And the king, out of all the books that he could um, have, picks the book that tells the story of Mordecai. The king asks, did we ever honor this guy? And the servant says, no. The king decides that's what he's going to do the first thing in the morning. So just as soon as the sun rises, the king is preparing to honor Mordecai. And guess who happens to walk in to the room? Haman. So the king just so happens to say, hey man, how do you think I should honor someone who's super special? Haman thinks it's for him and says, you should put him in royal robes and you should parade him around for everyone to honor him. The king says, that's a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. So all of a sudden, Haman finds himself leading the guy he wanted to kill through the land for everyone to praise. But Haman, see, he thinks, he still thinks he's pretty special and he still has some hope because Queen Esther has invited him to a special banquet with just her and the king. So he's thinking, there's some hope, I'm pretty special. Until he gets to the banquet. Queen Esther invites the king and Haman to this banquet. And at that, she says, King, we have a problem. You have decreed the destruction of the Jews and your wife's a Jew. The king says, who in the world made me do that? Esther says, whoo The king is furious and leaves the room. Haman ends up before Esther, pleading for his life. The king just so happens to enter back into the room, and at that time, he thinks that Haman is mistreating his wife. So he says, that's it, I'm hanging you. And it just so happens that some gallows had been built for someone else, right? And within hours, Haman is saying hello to those. Like this is the story, this is so crazy. And as we begin to think about all these things and the, the name of God might not be mentioned, but the fingerprints of God are all over this. And so we have this story and we have to understand what is the book of Esther trying to teach us? What is it trying to help us to understand? What is the truth that is trying to sink into our hearts? How is her example helping us to know the script to live our lives? It's this reality that God has the whole thing written. Rigged. that God has the whole thing rigged and if you've been around resonate you've heard us say this again that God has the whole thing rigged that in all of these things the question is are we going to participate are we going to recognize that there's an urgent need and are we going to put it out there and this is what is so clear that when we begin to see this that we begin to operate in a way that begins to see that God is constantly at work that God is constantly his work and that God invites us into his work. I want you to get that when we begin to have eyes to see the God's sovereignty and when we begin to see the urgent need, what we begin to see is that God is at work and we begin to see the moments. And when we begin to see the moments, we begin to think, do I have the courage to step into the moments? Do I have what it takes to be able to get into this and be able to make a difference in the world? Because I want you to get the opportunity in front of you is significant. That the need around us is urgent, that the God above us is sovereign and the opportunity in front of you is significant. This is how we begin to see that God is going to to work, right? And it says this, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai, he's brilliant. Queen, there's an urgent need. Queen, there is a sovereign God. And queen, there is a reality that the opportunity in front of you might be the very thing that you've been created for. Do you believe that about your life? Do you believe that there's an urgent need and a sovereign God and that he's created you in this time and place to do something significant. And that, does that begin to just fill your life? Is your heart full? Is your mind full of being able to say, this? this is, this is what I'm aiming my life for, that there is an urgent need, that there's a sovereign God and there's a moment for me to embrace this, that it might be that God has prepared my entire life for these moments, big and small. Because there's moments that you can step into that no one else can step into. There's realities that you can step into that are unique to you. And Mordecai says, I'm not the queen. I don't have an opportunity to go, through the, go before the king. No one can do anything about this except for you, Esther. Except for you. And it might not be that dramatic in your life and my life, but these words ring true in our lives, just like they did a couple of thousand years ago into the life of Esther. Who knows, right? This is Mordecai helping her to discover something about herself, helping her to discover something. Maybe this is what you've been created for. Maybe this is the thing that defines you And so in this, as we begin to ask, how do we see this? I want you to get that there's an opportunity that's in front of every one of us. And we just have to ask, what is this for us? What is it rigged for? Uh, Mordecai speaks a truth that I believe is essential. And, and I think that there's three types of people. When we begin to hear this idea that God is sovereign, when we begin to hear this thing that God has it all rigged, there's three different kinds of people. There's the first person that says, God isn't sovereign and I'm in control that I don't believe that God is working in all of this, that I don't believe that God is actively engaged in the world, that I don't believe that there's anything that God had, like that I'm, I'm the controller of my own destiny. I'm the, I'm the captain of my own ship. And I do not expect for God to do anything on my behalf. Now, ironically, oftentimes what we find out is that in moments of, uh, of desperation, and moments of tragedy, it's amazing how many people hit their knees, right? It's amazing how many people think, I don't think God's in control until it's evident that they aren't in control. And then all of a sudden, right, as, as Matt Carney says, we're all just one phone call from our knees. And in those moments, we begin to go into number two, God is sovereign, but my, bea- my behaviors are this, that I'm in control. That I believe cognitively that God is sovereign, but the way that I live my life is, is understanding that I am in control, that understanding that I am in, I, I'm the one in the driver's seat. And the last one is this, that, that God, is in, God, God is sovereign and he is in control. And that's when the belief and the behavior match up. And we begin to see uh, people who believe this is, this is God, this is sovereign, he's got it all rigged. And I'm gonna live my life with the, just embracing the reality that God has it all rigged. And sometimes what happens is these people make decisions that don't make any sense to anyone else around them. That they make decisions that are hard to understand. That when we begin to think about what this looks like, they're like, what, what's going on here? I'm, I'm not sure because they begin to believe something and they begin to understand something that God has it all rigged. Now, I I want you to get that that I really believe that many of us are number two kind of people. Many of us are number two kind of people. And we're like this, we believe that God is sovereign, but we also believe that if I don't, it won't. We we believe that we have to have some sort of a control over this. And 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 to actually to get our lives to look like the kind of lives that we want, we begin to take the responsibility and we put it on our shoulders. And we begin to say, this is how um, this is how I need to act, and this is what this needs to look like, and this is this is ultimately the kind of life that I want. And and I'm gonna cognitively believe that you're in control, but I'm gonna practically understand that I am in control. And in this, I I want you to get these moments become really clear when we begin to have this understanding of our our feelings. Um, And our feelings really begin to tell what we actually believe. That when there's something that happens around us, is our first idea, God, you have this? Or is our first idea, I've got to figure out this. I've got to get the plan. I've got to control this especially when it's that thing that's so close to your heart. Now we can believe in the sovereignty of God and all kinds of things, but there's that one thing that you're like, this is, this is it. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your, your free time. Maybe it's your possessions. That one thing you're like, hey, this is the hardest thing. Like we, we wanna give God everything except for we, we often have something that we put into the box, right? We have something that we say, God, I'll give you everything <clears throat> except for this. And it's when that thing is threatened that you figure out if you actually believe that God is sovereign or not. When that thing gets threatened and you begin to say, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna move in, I'm gonna control this thing. Or if you say, this, this, in terms of earthly things, this, this is the thing that means the most to me. And I also believe that God has it rigged, all rigged, And I believe that God is sovereign even in this most sensitive thing in my heart. That's when you know. That's when you know if you're a type two person or a type three person. Not if you just think, ah, you know what? I, I think this whole thing's gonna work out because all of us have different things. All of us have things that we're happy to give God control over because we don't really care. And all of us have things that are deeply embedded that are the very difficult things for us to give over. And so in this, we need to ask, is God in control or is God a guide? Is God in control or is God a guide? Now, this is, this is really key because um, as we think about this, I recently read a book on how stories work. And basically a story is this, there's a hero who wants something, but there's something that keeps him from having it, which creates conflict. Then there's a guide who enters to help them to overcome the obstacle and ultimately achieve what they wanted. Now that's basically every story. Just ruined it all, right? Um, Every story that captures our heart is there's a hero who wants something and can't get it, or there's a conflict in some ways, and a guide enters um, to be able to help them to achieve what they want. And in this, what happens is I can go through and give you all kinds of illustrations, but I think you understand. In this, our narcissistic, normal way for us to see this is that we are the hero. And what do we need? We need a guide because we have some desires and there's some conflict that we have. So we need a guide and we begin to sing, Hey, I want to get the very best guide. I want God to be my guide. Right. And then we put the bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. Not as much anymore, but used to see them maybe on old vehicles, you know, God is my co-pilot. Right. And we think I need a guide. And what happens is something we never expected. We take the sovereignty of God and we begin to place it aside and we say, I don't need God being sovereign. I need God to be wise. And so now the wisdom of God becomes my guide. Now, what we never expected is that the moment moment that we exchange God's sovereignty for his wisdom, we take all of God's responsibility. So now that you're in control, anxiety enters, worry enters. All of these things enter into our lives. And we begin to say, how do we balance this? How do we do this? How do we live this out? And all of a sudden we begin to see the astronomical rise of depression, of anxiety, we begin to see the skyrocketing nature of all of these things. And some of them are are not anything to do with how we think, but the chemicals in in our brains. But many of them are something that are behavioral based that we just think, I'm gonna take on this. And even if it isn't in a clinical context, still the very sense of us being able to say, I'm going to take on this, there is worry that we don't have to carry. If God is sovereign and not just wise, this is so key for you to be able to understand. I, I, I want you to be able to digest this, and I want you to be able to have a life that begins to radically change, and you begin to have this, this sense of being able to th- th- say, man, this is, this is a weight lifted off my shoulders. This is, uh, I want you to feel the freedom of understanding the sovereignty of God. Remember, what she says is, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, how can you say, if I perish, I perish? It's because when you begin to understand what God is up to. See, um, let me illustrate. I, I believe that, I mean, if you, see our vision of our church to plant 21 churches by the year 2021. I believe that if we plant churches that plant churches and we start making multiplication normative, that it will transform everything about ourselves and about our church. It will give a purpose to following Jesus that goes beyond ourselves and eliminate the narcissism that comes with that. It'll keep us from becoming religious hypocrites and it'll ultimately transform the world. I really believe that God gave the disciples that make disciples, churches that plant churches. This is the transformation Transformative vision of our church, but this is the transformative vision of the mission of God from the very beginning of the church. And it feels like, uh, and so we set this, set this vision to plant 21 churches by the year 2021, just to give us a tangible picture of what multiplication looks like that forces us all the way down to be able to say, I'm going to read the Bible for the sake of the mission. I'm going to change my behaviors for the sake of the extension of multiplication. So that we begin to think about, this is the, this is the goal of this. And the picture, is this, that we're rolling this this boulder up a hill. And, and the idea is that by setting our sights on planting 21 churches by the year 2021, these are just numbers, but at some point, what will happen is that multiplication begins to take and begin to have a flywheel effect, that it begins to have momentum on its own, and we're pushing this boulder up this hill, and at some point, we're going to get on the other side of the hill, and it's going to take on, and it's going to have a life of its own, and who knows, right? Who knows? We're going to try, we're trying to create something that we can never control, a breakout of the kingdom of God, and a revival that we can never ever say, oh, we've engineered this thing. We're just trying to start something and that's why we're inviting you to be a part of starting something but here's in this moment that the thing that has most tripped me up in my life is that if it's almost like we're pushing this boulder up a hill and if we can just put this effort into it right now and then there's like this stick or there's this rock and it feels like there's this like like we get stuck and the and the picture that comes to my mind is that I'm, I'm sitting there and pushing the boulder but the boulder is huge. And I, and what happens is I believe in my life that it's just, it's just us together pushing this boulder. And I feel like if I zoomed out, the picture is that God has his finger on the boulder and is just pushing it up, right? But I think there's a stick in the way, there's a rock in the way, and it feels like we can't get past this thing. And God is have you ever, for those of you who are parents, I I remember uh, a a few years ago, I kayaked with my kids and we were on Lake Coeur We were just, we are kayaking and, um, and I'm just back there digging in, you know, just putting all this effort and, um, and we get done kayaking and, uh, and my kids come back and I tell, I tell my wife and they're like, yeah, it was, ama- it was so easy. Like those kayaks, they're just like, they just slide through the water. It was so easy. I was like, I was back there paddling the whole time. That was me sweating. Not like my arms are sore. Like you thought it was you. You thought the kayak was awesome. You know, that was dad. It's the same thing. God's doing this whole thing and that we won't ultimately know how significantly God is moving this forward to the very end. So ultimately here's the thing that God's sovereignty gives us courage. It gives us courage to act. That God's sovereignty allows us to borrow the God God's characteristics. So here's what I mean by that. It allows us to borrow his characteristic God's sovereignty. So you don't have the capacity to be able to step into the moment, but God has the capacity. You may not be able to have the strategy to figure this all out, but it's okay because God has the strategy. It's not your ability, it's his ability. It's not your knowledge, it's his knowledge. This is all over the Bible. I want you to get the narrative of the Bible is that it's not your capacity, not your ability, not your knowledge, it's only your obedience. If you put your obedience on the line, then God supplies everything else. So you borrow all of God's characteristics when you say yes to God's commandments. Okay, so when you begin to think about Abraham and Isaac, man, God's, God's sovereignty, all he had to say is yes, and then God sovereignly put all of that together. He didn't have to sacrifice his kid. You begin to see, um, you begin to see Moses, what, what, he, he stuttered, right? He couldn't speak well and he was going to the Pharaoh and he couldn't hold his own weight in front of the Pharaoh and God said, okay, I'm gonna handle this. I need you to say yes, but I'm going to take care of this. And God's like, I have it all rigged. It doesn't matter about your speech capacity. You're borrowing my characteristics. And God's God's so gracious. So he gives him Aaron, right? Here's a bone. Just take Aaron alongside of you. But God was going to do it whether it was Aaron or not, right? You think of David and Goliath, right? So you think about the ultimate underdog story that David alone recognized well, if God has said that we're going to win the battle, then we should, all, all that's required of us is to get on the battlefield. The sovereignty of God. You begin to see Gideon. And, and over and over, what happens? To clarify that God has it all rigged, he keeps hearing from God that he should reduce the number of his army. And he reduces them from thousands to 300 to take on thousands, right? And it's clear in the Bible that God wants us to know that he has it all rigged. We begin to see, um, we begin to see the disciples, right? Not the sharpest tools in the shed, and yet God uses them in a significant way. Even people begin to say, how are these people getting it done? Because these are not learned people. These are not people that have education, right? And so they, they can't figure out God's sovereignty and yet it is there in front of us. We begin to see Paul and we begin to see his I, we, we begin to say, Paul has this this thing about him, right? And we don't know what this thing is, but Paul keeps saying, hey, I'm not good to look at. I am not the most eloquent person. And yet he is the most prolific church planner to ever live. We begin to think about the cultural change that Paul had in and of himself, not as a guy who anyone would have thought was a leader. God can use anyone. And this is the amazing thing. We think about the early church. They're persecuted, They are, uh, they're, they're killed. They are uh, absolutely not prepared, right? Think about, they don't even have a Bible. All they have is the teachings of the apostles. And right, this, this, creates a movement. And the one undeniable thing you can take, you can believe the Bible, not believe the Bible, which you cannot not believe is that Christianity has spread like a wildfire over the last 2000 years and dominated almost every part of the globe. It is on attack, right? But to get here, what happened is that these people who no one would have expected understood the sovereignty of God. And I want you to know, Resonate Church, it can happen again. It can happen in our midst. There's more people in these rooms than there were from the very beginning. If we would just begin to believe what. Queen Esther believed that the that it is urgent and it is an opportunity for us to seize and if we only begin to believe that there's the sovereignty of God so this the sovereignty of God gives us clarity this is our last thing the sovereignty of God gives us clarity so she says I can't do that it changes to I can do that so when we think I can't do this God can't be calling me to do this. We begin to have God's sovereignty that gets put in the middle of it. And then we begin to say, I must do this. I wanna see our people begin to go from I can't to I must simply because they've inserted the sovereignty of God right in the middle of that. What does it look like for us to be able to do this? For us to be able to move from I can't do this to I must do this. And this is what I love. Here's what she says. This is the essence of what it means to follow. This is not what did she do? She didn't go to work. When there was the urgent need in front of her, when there was the recognition of the sovereignty of God, what did she say? Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa. And what? Fast for me. Before we have a plan, before we put it in control, what she does is she says, I need to go and I need to understand what it means to embrace the power of God in this moment. I mean, from the very beginning, and this is something I still struggle, with, I, missing the power of God to try to create a strategy. What, what does she do? Urgent need, sovereignty of God, seize the moment, go to God. We can't embrace the sovereignty of God without going to him in his power and his control and the demonstration of who he is. And, and, and here's, here's what we need to do. It is impossible to do the work of God without the power of God. It is impossible to do the work of God without the power of God. So may we begin to see the urgent need and we first fall upon our knees. And we begin to say, we're gonna pray. We're gonna fast. We're actually gonna give up things that we love because this is so significant in front of us. And my desire is that God would take the heart of Esther and he would place that part of Esther in all of us, that there would be a yieldedness that we have to him, that God has put you here for a reason. There are no accidents in your context. There are no accidents in your history. There might be some stuff that is painful in your history, but there are no accidents in your history. God has sovereignly ordained all these things to be a demonstration of who he is and I want you to get this is the essence of what it means to follow. This is not a maturity thing. What does Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. So my deep hope is that you would clearly experience an act of God's sovereignty in your life and that you would recognize God's move and it would change everything and your heart would awaken and you would recognize the moment that you would say, I stepped into this moment and I recognize God's sovereignty. It's the moment you feel most alive in your life. It's the moment that there was something you would recognize. This is the most real thing that has ever happened to me, that I began to recognize what was going on behind the scenes as God over and over demonstrated his sovereignty. So the question is, who are you surrendering your life to? And, and the ultimate act of the sovereignty of God was the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And he didn't try to hide it. And that act of sovereignty changes everything because it allows us to have a relationship with a God who is sovereign over all things because of his son, Jesus So the question for you and I right now, is there something that you know God is asking of you? And you think, I can't do that. Because you're struggling to believe that God is actually sovereign over that thing. Is there something that you know, like deep within you, that the hand of God is pushing you towards? Is there something that God is saying to you Here's what I want to ask, just, just for this moment, that you would begin to start praying, God, would you start allowing your, the truth of your sovereignty to wash over my heart and my mind? Allow that to erode all of the struggles that I have against that thing. God, change me. Help me to become an Esther-like person that can say, if I perish, I perish. There's an urgent need. There's a sovereign God and there's a significant opportunity resonate. May we embrace the significant opportunities in front of us and say yes to a sovereign God. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would take and I ask that you would just so clearly demonstrate to us. God, give us the gift of not having to have a whole lot of faith in your sovereignty. Would you meet us where we're at God, in the next days, weeks, hours, months, would you make it really clear to us that we have a choice to put all that weight on our shoulders or to believe that you're sovereign. Lord, help us to make you our God and not a guide. In your holy name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.